In your Bible this evening, we would invite you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. We'll be reading the first 18 verses of that chapter in your pew Bible. You can find that on page 413. After we read from the inspired Word of God, we'll also be turning our attention once again to the Belgic Confession this evening to Article 27. And in your pew forms and prayers book, you can find that reference on page 183. We read from the Word of God this evening as it's found in 1 Kings 19, verses 1 through 18. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, He arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die, and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals in a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu the son of Nimshi as king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat Of Abel, Mahola, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu, will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha, will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Thus far this evening, our reading from the Word of God. We then turn to Article 27 of the Belgic Confession that is entitled, The Holy Catholic Church, and it 
states that we believe and confess one single Catholic or universal church, a holy congregation and gathering of true Christian believers, awaiting their entire salvation in Jesus Christ, being washed by His blood and sanctified and sealed by the Holy Spirit. This church has existed from the beginning of the world and will last until the end, as appears from the fact that Christ is eternal King who cannot be without subjects. And this holy church is preserved by God against the rage of the whole world, even though for a time it may appear very small in the eyes of men, as though it were snuffed out. For example, during the very dangerous time of Ahab, the Lord preserved for himself 7,000 men who did not bend their knees to Baal. And so this holy church is not confined, bound, or limited to a certain place or certain persons, but it is spread and dispersed throughout the entire world, though still joined and united in heart and will, in one and the same spirit, by the power of faith. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it has been quite a number of decades uh, since a popular secular commentary on culture sang out, encouraging us to look at all the lonely people with all the lonely faces. And although decades have passed since that very popular cultural commentator spoke to the community at large, still, if you are observant, you look around and you see all the lonely people. Statistically, we are told by those who engage in the evaluation uh, of culture that loneliness is on the rise. Even though we're more interconnected through the means of technology, even though we can FaceTime with one another, and even though we can send out a mass email with a click of uh, the button on our mouse, statistically, loneliness is on the increase. And along with loneliness, a host of other mental health issues, anxiety, depression, an overwhelming sense of discouragement and dismay. Uh, but this problem is not a new problem. Loneliness, discouragement, we find such a problem in the life of Elijah. He has a sense of loneliness. He cries out to his God, I am the only one left. And along with that sense of loneliness, he also then has a sense of discouragement. It is enough. Just let me die and be with my fathers. And now whether if it's the Christian life in general or whether it's life in the Christian church more specifically, there are times in which we do wrestle with loneliness. And there are times in which we do feel all alone. And maybe you hear these words, especially uh, in the elderly years of your life, and maybe you are a widow or a widower. And you say, yes, loneliness is my friend, my companion. It's there in the morning. It's there maybe especially in the evening. It's not the nicest of friends, but it's my constant companion. Maybe you're a young person. You say, well, I have all of these other people around me, but maybe you sense that no one understands me. Uh, no one really would be there for me. Well, I want to assure you that there are people who are there for you. And those people especially are your family members, but also your church community. Uh, this afternoon I read an article, a brief article in the Christian Renewal, which introduced me to a new concept. 
uh, that the church is in some areas going completely virtual, uh, that there is uh, a, a new meta-church. And I had this fear, and many had this fear, when the days of the pandemic of COVID first came upon us, and when the church was forced to go virtual, the fear was that the appreciation of the community of believers and of the physical gathering together, uh, that that beauty and that necessity of corporately gathering ourselves together would perhaps be compromised and perhaps be lost. Uh, This is a consequence of a lack of understanding of what the Christian church is. Uh, Now, you'll notice we begin this evening in our Belgian Confession going through numerous articles that are going to deal with the Christian church Uh, that theological area that we call ecclesiology or the study or the doctrines of the church. Uh, There are numerous articles in the Belgic Confession because this was a a hot topic in the days of the Reformation. This was one of the key areas of debate and of disagreement between the Protestant Reformers uh, and the Roman Catholics. Uh, But its importance is not just historically stated. Rather, the importance is very, very practical. Given what we've said about the rise of loneliness uh, and the resulting sense of discouragement and dismay, one of the most important things for us to understand, old and young and everyone in between, is the importance of the local church. But to understand the importance of the local church, there must be a clear understanding of what exactly the church is. Uh, And we hope to begin looking at that this evening Uh, with our theme, our belief concerning the nature of the church. Three things that we'll say this evening, and Lord willing, in future weeks we'll be able to say more things about the church. The three things this evening about the church, we'll consider her gathered nature, and then secondly, her perpetual nature, and then thirdly, her universal nature. So the belief that we have about the nature of the church If someone were to ask you, what exactly is the church? That gets to the heart of the question of the nature. The first thing that we would say, based upon the revelation of the Word of God, as also then summarized by our Belgic Confession, something that we profess each and every Sunday evening with the words of the Apostles' Creed, we say that we believe by faith that there is the existence of a holy Catholic church. But what is the church? The church is, first of all, I would submit to you on the authority of Scripture, a a body or an entity, uh, an entity that has an existence by being gathered by God. It It is not just simply a product of human social development. The church is divine in its origin. The church is not something that man builds or that man came up with. And this is where we start because this is where the Word of God starts, but this is the most fundamental truth, that the church is in existence as a result of a work that God has planned from all of eternity in the decree of election and is realizing all throughout time with the historical gathering of the community of believers. And the very Word that is used frequently for church, indicates that this is a body of persons, of human beings. Now, on one hand, we could say that the church is viewed by the angels, the upright angels, the good and the holy angels, and those holy angels minister to the church. But when we think of the church, biblically speaking, we're referring to human beings, to to men and women, to boys and girls, 
who have been called out from this world, not geographically called out as some type of monastic, ascetic type of a life. It's not that we all run to compounds far away from uh, the rest of the culture to just circle in a huddle, but rather who are called out spiritually speaking, who are called out by being redeemed from the power uh, of, of Satan and the power of sin, who have been separated from the common mass of fallen mankind that continues to live in enmity against God, in hostility against God, and against the spiritual darknesses of our current age. 1 Peter, uh, verse 9 and 10 of chapter 2, points out this truth and also our spiritual identity. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy." A faint illustration, and these illustrations are always imperfect because they are illustrations, they're not the reality that we are illustrating, but we had the opportunity this week uh, to celebrate tulip time. And of course, tulip time uh, has also the activity of electing the the queen, and she's chosen out of I don't know how many candidates, Uh, and, and she's chosen and she's given a place of prominence. You see that especially in the parades, and she's seated there with her royal court, and I suppose that she has various functions now to fulfill for the next year as the Tulip Queen, speaking at various appointments and things such of that. But that's something of the idea. Now, one great big difference is that she apparently was chosen based upon some criteria that she met Uh, And so whatever the selecting committee evaluated, she was chosen on the merits that she had. The more remarkable thing is that God himself has chosen us to be kings and queens, sons and daughters, priests of the living God. And that that decision to gather us together was not based upon anything that he foresaw in us, but was based merely in his good pleasure and in his sovereign grace. But to combat the loneliness of all the people, my hope and my prayer is that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, young and old, and maybe especially young, might have this sense of wonderful identity that I am chosen by God to be a member of the royal court of the Christian church. And no matter whatever else life may have in store for you or for me, If that is our identity, then we ought to have a biblically-based, positive self-esteem. I say biblically-based to think again of the truth of 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. His own special people. I read a book this summer, well, more than one book, but one book that I read, and I remember uh, post-op, as I was sitting and contemplating things, maybe from a different perspective or from a deeper perspective, and the statement was read, Jesus Christ loves you more than you love yourself. Now, I knew that theologically, but think about that. Our God loves us 
more than we can even love ourselves. This is what it means to be part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, gathered by God, gathered as believers. Uh, the words in Scripture, again, that are used in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament emphasize this gathering together of persons. But what is it that gathers them together? Yes, it is God, but it is the Word of God. God gathers His people together through His Word and to His Word. God gathers His people together. We'll say that again because we believe that that's not only biblical, but also very essential to understanding her gathered nature. God gathers His people together through His Word and also to His Word. Just in passing, this underscores the importance of having the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God as the primary exercise of the corporate congregation. Now, when we come together in our worship services, there are various elements that we engage in, but at the center of it all has to be the Word of God, because it is the Word of God that gives us life. And it is the Word of God which gathers us together. And so not for the lifting up of any human person, but when we think of the common phrase, uh, going to church, when we think of gathering ourselves together, there ought to be this desire that we have a desire for the pure milk of the Word, that we come with this eager anticipation that God would speak to us through His Word, that our souls might be fed. And so we would just ask by way of passing application, is there this desire for the pure milk of the Word. Is this desire evident within our lives? With a humble, eager, faithful participation in the corporate worship service. Uh, the Christian congregation is gathered through the Word and to the Word. We see this very clearly evident, uh, for example, in Acts 2, verse 41 and 42. The early apostolic church then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Notice who were baptized. Those who gladly received or who heard the word of God. And so when you think of the church, uh, we ought to think about human beings, men and women, eternally elected according to God's good pleasure, not based on any foreseen merits in those persons, but only the good pleasure of God's redemptive grace, who God gathers together through the preaching of his word unto the teaching of his word. Well, if that is her gathered nature, what then can we say in our second point of her perpetual nature? And here we begin to describe something uh, more of the, the bride of Christ. And when you think of the church as the bride of Christ, indeed that's how Scripture itself speaks of the church. When you think of the bride of Christ and some of the beautiful attributes of the church of Christ, one of the beautiful attributes that the church has is her perpetual duration, that she has always been in an existence and that she will always be in existence. Her perpetual nature uh, is manifested all throughout history. Now, we want to be clear that when did God begin gathering people unto himself through his word, to his word? 
Uh, now, yes, there is a sense that we speak of the New Testament church beginning with the days and with the work of the apostles on Pentecost, but we are not dispensationalists, and so we trace the beginning of the Christian church all the way back to immediately upon the heels of the fall of Adam and Eve. And think there in Genesis chapter 3, there God is manifesting that already at the very dawn of human history, He has a purpose of exalting Himself and of exalting His only Son through the gathering together of men and women through the work of redemption. And He does so by His Word. And so when Adam and Eve run filled with a sense of shame upon the consequence of their sin. And when they hide from the face of God, God comes and by His Word, He says, Adam, where are you? And it's a gracious call. And His Word brings Adam and Eve out of the hiding of a sense of shame. And they come, yes, with excuses and with blame shifting, but they do come and they do acknowledge that which they have done. And of course, then God, by His Word, provides atonement for them. And and then the covenant promise continues from generation to generation. And now, yes, we know the sad consequence uh, of sin as it came to manifest itself in the life of Cain. Uh, But from generation to generation, God continues to gather His people together through His Word, unto His Word, and He will do so until the end. And so, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ when he teaches about the, the eschaton or, or the end of human history, end, end not in the sense like roll the credits, the show's over, but end in the sense of the culminating, consummating event. When he is questioned, when will the end be? One of the examples he gives of something that will take place is that the preaching will go forth to the end of the world. And then, when his word has gone forth, and has reached the ends of the nations, and has reached, we might say, the soul of the last elect, then the end will come. Well, why? Because then the church will be completely gathered together by the Word of God unto the Word of God. And you can see some of the absolute childish foolishness of those intellectuals in our day who give these dire predictions that You know that the sun is going to run out of fuel and we're all going to uh, freeze into non-existence or something nonsensical like that. When will the end come? Not when the sun, S-U-N, runs out of its fuel, but when the Word of God has gone to the end of the nations. And when the last elect has heard that word and has responded in repentance and faith and has embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, when the purposes of God's eternal election are realized with the salvation of every last Christian, then the Son, S-O-N, will return physically, gloriously, triumphantly, suddenly. And so the church manifests her perpetual duration, and yet uh, she labors on against the rage of the world. We should not be surprised that the world rages against the church. When we speak about world this way, we're not speaking about the created realm, the fields and the forest and the streams and the lakes. God created all of that, and He reflected upon that, and He said it was good. 
When we speak of world in this context, we mean fallen, rebellious humanity in enmity and in opposition against God, against the truth of God, against the Word of God, and by extension, the people of God. This world is no friend to the Christian because this world is no friend to the God of the Christian. And we shouldn't be surprised because Jesus plainly told us this. He says very plainly, the world has hated me, and if he hated me, he will hate you also. Now we certainly, according to what Paul tells us, we pray for authorities and we are thankful for the freedoms. Our desire is that we might live a quiet and a peaceable life. Having our religious freedoms preserved so that we can worship God according to our scripturally bound consciences and that we can instruct our children and our grandchildren according to those same scriptural principles that we might be free to do so. And when we have opportunity, we seek the good of the city in which God has planted us, just as Jeremiah did in his days, uh, by testifying for biblical truth. But we know that this world rages against God, and we see evidence of its raging. Uh, to have a, a certain cultural hermeneutic, uh, everything that we are seeing in the attack upon the sanctity of life, why does the fallen world that is at enmity against God so hate human life? Because human life bears the image of God. Why does the fallen mass of humanity so rage against marriage between one man and one woman? Because it's a divine institution created to reflect the relationship between Christ and His church. And so we understand that the world rages on But we understand that it rages on in an absolute exercise in futility because it will never prosper. The world can never dethrone Christ and the world can never upset the sovereign purposes of our God. Now Elijah, and it's absolutely remarkable to read the account of Elijah, he goes from the spiritual heights of standing firm and strong in allegiance to his God against all of the prophets of false religion. And then he's sent with the proverbial towel tucked between his legs, running off into the wilderness because of the rage of one woman. And there we find him. He's encountered the rage of the world. Jezebel has said, I'm going to remove your head, just like you removed the head of my prophets. Now, if we read the preceding narrative, we would think, oh, Elijah's going to march up there and say, well, you try it. I'll call down the second wave of fire upon you, Jezebel. But instead, he goes and he runs, and he hides, and he bemoans, you might say, the sad state of affairs of the church. He says, Lord, it is enough. I'm the only one left. And I do believe that there is a dangerous dangerous condition whereby individuals, and it's not necessarily so much individuals in the rank and file of the Christian congregation, perhaps the the greatest fear is for those who are in positions of leadership in the church to consistently bemoan the sad state of affairs of the church. To get together in meetings and informal dialogue and say, oh, remember the glory days? Seems like everything's bad and only getting worse. 
Are we the only ones left? That's where Elijah was. He had encountered the rage of the world, but he had forgotten the promise of God. And God comes in this remarkable scene. And it's not the purpose to exegetically expound 1 Kings 19, but just note that God passes by Elijah with all sorts of magnificent displays of power in the realm of creation. A strong and mighty wind, a fire, things that we would say are impressive. Things that we would say, now these will advance the kingdom. Fire and mighty winds and earthquakes, let's, let's really shake things up. But God was not in them. Because God was teaching Elijah a lesson. Not according to the ways that earthly kingdoms are established and advanced, but in a still, small voice. And God was in the still, small voice. Sometimes I believe you need to speak powerfully with volume and with authority. But as every successful orator knows, sometimes power is in the still, small voice. And I would just wonder what Elijah thought. A mighty earthquake, a fire, a strong wind, and then a small voice. In some ways, that small voice was saying, my ways are not your ways, Elijah. Don't fear, I still have 7,000. Now from one perspective, you could say 7,000. Drop in the bucket of a nation that counted millions. A covenant community that counted millions. But from Elijah's perspective, remember, he thought he was the only one. And God is coming in lovingly, but also firmly, we say lovingly, because he ministered to Elijah's needs. He said, Elijah, in essence, take a long nap, have a good meal, take another nap, and now we're going to talk. I still have 7,000. I have gathered together by my word unto my word 7,000. So in essence, the Lord is saying to Elijah, don't fear, Elijah. My church is of perpetual duration. And even though the world may rage, and even though the rage in the world may have an impact that we would view negatively upon the church, as the list of membership declines and as denominations and federations are threatened by apostasy, and as we see all sorts of division and factions within Christian congregations, the Lord is whispering in His Word, yes, labor on, but do not fear. Because Christ has said, and this is the key to the explanation behind the perpetual duration, Christ has said in Matthew 16, verse 18, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I firmly believe if you look at Scripture, and then also look at history, there are times in which human beings think that they will build the church. You can think of Gideon and of the army that he gathered together. And God comes again and again and again. And he says to Gideon, too many people. And Gideon's like, really, too many people? The odds are stacked. I just have a handful 
against this mighty army. And God says, too many people. He only wants 300. And you might say, why? So that God might receive all of the glory when the victory is accomplished. And the greatest fear is, is that we would begin to think that we will build the church. Yes, we labor with the work that God has given us in our homes, in our relationships, uh, and in the local congregation. But we labor, and we ought to labor, continually knowing and reminding ourselves that it is Christ who will build His church. It's His Word that will gather His people together. It's not the words of some human being. And any time the church is tempted to put someone on a pedestal and say, now around this figure we will gather ourselves together, God looks down with his holy jealousy and says, no. No, that person will not build my church. I, the risen, triumphant Christ, will build my church. And that's the lesson that Elijah has to learn underneath the broom tree. And that's the lesson that you and I need to continually learn underneath the broom trees of our life. The perpetual duration of the church means that it will outlast any and every organization that is put together by man because it is not a human-based organization, but a divinely-based organization. On the authority of the Word of God, I can without any shadow of a doubt testify to you that every other organization, business, corporation, the most successful to the least successful, they all will have the time in which they close shop. In which the, again, proverbial shingle is taken down. In which those businesses and those organizations that perhaps were once the influencers of culture are nothing more than a footnote in the history textbook, but that will never be true of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. For all of eternity... The church will continue to exist. So put your confidence in what the Lord God is and what He will do. Oh, we must hasten on to say something about our third point, her universal nature. And, and further articles will deal more specifically with this. But this also is relevant and important for us to remember. The church considered what theologians often call her invisible aspect is universal in nature. So we confess to believe in one holy Catholic or, or universal church. This gathering of believers by the Word to the Word occurs historically all throughout history. And, and that's why, and again maybe review for the, the catechism students uh, in the congregation, the young people, we, we say that the church is universal and that we say that it is invisible in the sense that the human eye, and this is why she is ultimately a product which we see by faith, not by sight. How do you know that Abraham is a member of the church? By the Word of God. Can you see him with a visible eye? Well, of course not. He's also, we add, the aspect of the triumphant church in glory, and so heaven now is already being filled with those who have completed their earthly journey through the labors of the militant church and make up their membership in the triumphant church. And there is this recognition and this bond, and this is the most comforting recognition, the most comforting bond, especially when our loved ones die in the Lord, that although here in this life we are called apart for a time, 
Nevertheless, we believe that we are still gathered together by one Lord, that we have one faith, that we have received one baptism. And we know that the day soon comes in which we will be reunited. No, not necessarily in the same relationships, but we know that when we are called to part, it's only for a time, because we believe the church is scattered all throughout the world historically and also geographically. I honestly believe that it's only the church, the Christian church, the biblical Christian church that has the answer to racism. It's only the Christian church that has the answer. Now, there are many who are clamoring with their suggestions, but we are the ones who believe that the human race is made of one blood. And we are the ones who believe that the Christian church is made up of individuals that are seen in Revelation 7, verse 9 and 10, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. I'll read that again. All nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And it is only, we read this morning uh, in Proverbs 22, how the rich and the poor, the Lord is the maker of them all. It's only the church that completely brings all classes together. Think of it. The rich, they have their spot in the church. You can think of many individuals. Abraham was quite wealthy. You can think of Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, they had their position in the church, but on what basis? The grace of God. Think of the penitent thief on the cross. Uh, he was bankrupt in more ways than one. He had a position in the church on what basis? The same basis. The grace and the mercy of God. You know, in many, many organizations, uh, you, you have certain levels, right? Maybe you're a, a silver member. Maybe you give a little bit more, and then you're a gold member. Uh, maybe a little bit more, and then you're a platinum member. Uh, and the benefits maybe are structured likewise. If you're a platinum member, you know, you have greater benefits than if you're just a gold member. There's nothing of that in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single person who's in the church is on the same level, sons and daughters of the living God. Whether you be the equivalent of a slave in the days of the New Testament, or whether you be the equivalent of a master, your position in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is based completely upon the work of Jesus Christ. That's the only way to be a member of the church, to have a living act of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you have a living act of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, then all of the benefits, all of the benefits are yours. Uh, the benefits include the forgiveness of sins. The benefits include uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The benefits include eternal life. For every single true and living member of the Christian church. And being united by the Spirit 
You know, that's the common bond. Uh, now, now, here we have many things in common. You might say, well, we have a common ethnicity, and you might say, well, we have you know, a, a common background. And, and that's true, and that's not necessarily something to be despised by us. Now, if it begins to create a kind of aloofness towards other nationalities or, or other cultures, then it's something that needs to be quickly checked with the authority of the Word of God and a spirit of repentance. But what is it that really binds us together? And I think this is an important question for us to ask as a congregation and to evaluate uh, as leadership in the congregation, but also as a congregation in its entirety. What is it that binds us together? It has to be what we find expressed uh, in Ephesians. One Lord, one faith, and a unity and a love and a mutual concern one for another based upon the recognition that we are one in the Lord. Now, spiritually speaking, we are brothers and sisters. And so Paul says as much in Ephesians 4, and then he gives a closing application with which we also conclude this evening, anticipating a future week's consideration of the church. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Understanding that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that we have one Lord, one faith, let us walk with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your electing love and for the sure promise based upon the Lord Jesus Christ that you, through him, would gather your people together by your word unto your word. Uh, we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would grant us uh, a biblical perspective concerning the existence of the church, uh, of her essential spiritual nature. May we also begin to understand uh, to a greater and greater depths, that it's not uh, a human effort that establishes and advances your church, but it is only the work of you uh, through your Son by your Spirit. Uh, we ask then that you would continue to establish and maintain your kingdom against the rage of the entire fallen mass of humanity. And Lord, may your kingdom come. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.